0: 1 Corinthians chapter 9 Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am an apostle to you, for you are my seal, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law That I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, it's wonderful to be with you tonight and to share God's word with you.
1: Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that your word is a challenge to the comfortable and a comfort to the challenged. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would do its work in each one of our hearts as we have need. And we ask it for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. When I was at university many years ago, I had a friend who was studying psychology. And every week she would tell me about the crazy psychological experiments that they would perform back in the 1960s and the 1970s before ethics committees got involved and stopped you from doing that sort of thing. And every week I would wish that I chose to do a more interesting degree than accounting. My favourite was the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment that was run by a man called Walter Mischel in 1972. And he was studying self-control. And what he did is he bought a whole bunch of four-year-olds and he'd stick them in a room and he'd put a marshmallow in front of them and then he would say to them... You can eat that marshmallow now, but if you wait until I come back, I'll give you another one, and you can have two. One now or two later. Tough choice. And then he'd leave the room. Now, you can imagine what happened next, can't you? We're talking about four-year-olds here. Almost all of them ate the marshmallow immediately. Uh, Others, they did resist, and I quote, some would cover their eyes and their hands... Uh, and they would turn around so that they couldn't see the tray. Uh, Others uh, started to kick the desk or tug on their pigtails. Some stroked the marshmallow as if it were a tiny stuffed animal. (laughs) This is the cutest experiment ever, isn't it? Um, The child that lasts the longest actually sat in the corner, facing the corner, uh, stuck her fingers in her ears, and sang loudly to herself to stop her from eating the marshmallow. And what Walter Mischel discovered was that surprise surprise four year olds aren't very good at self control i think anyone who's spent any time with a four year old could have told you that but what he went on to discover and what was the point of the whole exercise was that actually uh, the little ones that could last longer well as the years went by they started to do they tended to do better at school and and at university they tended to do better in their careers just kind of almost in any way they measured it uh, they tended to do better in life those who had more self-control were more successful in life. And I think that makes sense. I think uh, we instinctively know this, don't we? I would like to be a more self-controlled, a more self-disciplined person. I think it, it, almost any of us can imagine the parts of our life where that would be useful, you know, in our studies, getting our assignments done, concentrating uh, when it's time just to, you know, knuckle down for exams. Uh, you know, if, if we're uh, Have health and fitness goals, being more self-controlled is is kind of really important. But even in our relationships with our families, with even those of us who are married or who have boyfriends and girlfriends, we can imagine ways that being self-controlled would be really good. And look, we could even have a really fruitful discussion about how important self-control is is in our spiritual lives. But why am I even kind of talking to you about self-control? Well, 1 Corinthians 9 is a complex chapter, in the middle of a complex section in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Uh, But what strikes me most when I read 1 Corinthians 9 is the incredible self-control, the incredible self-discipline that Paul, the Apostle Paul, displays throughout this chapter. Uh, He sums it up at the end, doesn't he? We read it just a moment ago in verses 24 and onwards, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run as someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For Paul, the Christian life is not like a week down by the beach. For Paul, the Christian life feels like the the strict training of of an elite athlete. His discipline is is impressive. And yet here's the thing, all throughout 1 Corinthians 9, Paul never uses that self-control for himself. I'd love to have that kind of self-control. There's all sorts of ways in which it would benefit me, but Paul never uses it for himself. In fact, again and again and again, he always uses it for others. Paul gives up his freedoms. He gives up his rights. He does everything he can. He gives up his pleasures. He even makes himself a slave, all for, as he says, for the sake of the gospel. And for the sake of other people's salvation. And here's the real challenge of that. When Paul gets to the end of this part of 1 Corinthians, when he gets to chapter 11, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles there, just turn over to chapter 11, verse 1. And there he he lets us know why he's telling us all these things. And what does he say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, everything that I've been talking to you about in 1 Corinthians 9, all the discipline, all the sacrifices, all the service, I did for the salvation of other people. And all that I did, Jesus did at first. And now I'm just encouraging you to follow his example. So really, I've got three questions that I want to ask you tonight to help us understand 1 Corinthians 9. What is Paul asking us to do from verses 1 to 18? How does Paul expect us to do it from verses 19 to 27? And then why does Paul ask in this way? What is Paul asking us to do? How does Paul expect us to do it? And why does he ask us in this way? So please do keep your your Bibles open to, to 1 Corinthians 9. But firstly then, what is Paul asking us to do? Well, quite simply, Paul is asking us to consider the salvation of other people as more important than our freedoms, our rights, even our pleasures and our comforts. So much so that we might be willing to give all of them up if it's going to mean salvation for other people that we might give them all up if it means that we might take away any hindrance, any hurdle, any barrier from other people hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul knows that's a huge thing to ask us to do. Having freedoms and, and protecting freedoms, that's a big part of our culture, isn't it? Rights are the kinds of things that you can't ask people to give up. They're the very things that you fight not to have to give up. And even the last couple of years have made us very, very sensitive to this whole question of of, of rights and and freedoms. And yet Paul here does an extraordinary thing. He asks us to give them up and offers up his own life as an example of doing so. Uh, But actually, uh, Paul started this conversation a chapter ago in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm sorry we didn't get to have a sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, We had Murray Capel last week come and speak to us instead, which was was wonderful. But it is online if you want to go back and and listen to what 1 Corinthians 8 is all about. Let me kind of summarise it very quickly for you. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talked about a tricky issue for the Corinthian church, uh, the issue of food that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, Paul was very, very clear, there's only one God. Idols are, are just statues Uh, And there is no way that meat that has been offered to idols is in any way spiritually contaminated and nor can it spiritually contaminate you. But some people who believed in idols before they turned to Jesus, well they were not so liberated in their conscience, they were not so free. And so they felt guilty about eating the meat that had been offered to idols and they felt unsettled when they saw other Christians doing the same. Uh, they didn't have the same sort of, of knowledge that Paul had. And so out of love, Paul doesn't want to hinder them or harm them in any way. So at the end of chapter 8, in verse 13, you can see it there, Paul comes to this conclusion. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. So that I will not cause them to fall. I'm free to eat meat, says Paul. I- I'm even free to eat idle meat. But if that freedom is going to hurt a brother or sister, if it's going to hinder a brother or sister, if it's going to lead them into sin, well then, you know, I'll walk past the end of the buffet table with the crispy bacon and the deep fried chicken and the perfect wagyu steaks. And I'll walk to the other end of the table with the limp vegetables and the dreary salad. I got in trouble for saying it like that this morning, but I'm unrepentant. I'll walk past the meats. <laughs> I'll eat the vegetables, I'll be vegetarian, I'll be vegan. If it means that someone is not hindered in their relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's a huge thing. It's a huge thing to ask. And knowing what a big deal it is, here in chapter 9, Paul doesn't change topics. He just gives a second example of what it means to, to give up rights for the sake of someone else's salvation. And so chapter 9 begins with Paul vigorously defending his rights because before he can talk about what he's given up, he first has to establish that he has any in the first place. And the chief right that he talks about is his right to be paid and to be provided for as he proclaims the gospel. Uh, Not just for himself but for his wife as well, should he have one, which he doesn't. Uh, But... Paul even spends a lot of this chapter establishing that he has this right. It takes up the first 14 verses and he gives us six versions of this right. And really, uh, you know, that we don't need to pay much attention to them. But uh, let me just kind of quickly go through them so that you can, you can see, like the Corinthians did, just the right that he had a right to. Uh, so firstly, there is his right as an apostle in verses 4 to 6. Uh, like all of the other apostles, as they proclaimed the gospel as, as Cephas, otherwise known as the apostle Peter, or as the brother of the Lord Jesus, otherwise known as James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, as they went around and preached the gospel and were supported, so too Paul ought to be supported as he preached the gospel. But then in verse 7, there is also his, his right as a worker. Just like any soldier or any farmer or any shepherd, he has the right to share in the fruits of his labors. And then thirdly, there is his right under the law of Moses, that even the oxen gets to eat the grain as, as they tread it out. So too, a preacher of the gospel ought to be able to reap a reward, reap, eat from, from the work that they do. In verses 11 and 12, he kind of talks about a natural right. He, he connects spiritual seed with a, a material harvest. And then in verse 13, he points out that that right is accepted and understood even by the pagan temples in Corinth that were surrounding them. Reminding us again that it's not far from Paul's mind, this topic of food sacrificed to idols. And then lastly, as if all that wasn't enough, kind of in verse 14, Paul plays his, his last and most devastating argument. He points out that it was the explicit command of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet, despite exhaustively arguing for this right, uh, Paul makes it very clear that this is a right that is given up. Have a look at verse twelve, would you? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul makes no use of his rights. In fact, he, Paul—he worked for a living. He worked as a tent maker so that he could preach the gospel free of charge. He even chose to remain single rather than to marry, than to put an additional expense on those to whom he was proclaiming the gospel to. And even now, down in verse 15, even now as he comes to them and makes this argument... He's not looking to take up his rights. He's not looking for somehow some back pay for what he's done in the past. He's not asking for a contribution to his superannuation fund. He's not waving a, a fistful of receipts looking for a reimbursement. No, he says instead that he would rather die, in verse 15, than exercise his rights. He would much rather preach the gospel to them free of charge and it was his choice to do so. Now in verse 16 it's a strange little verse verse 16 but in verse 16 he makes it clear that his choice is not whether or not he would preach the gospel. No no. Paul knew he had to preach the gospel. Paul was he was compelled to proclaim the gospel. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to the apostle Paul on the Damascus road who commanded him to preach the gospel. That's not a choice. But Paul could choose to do it for nothing. That was his choice and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted, verse 18, to offer the gospel to them free of charge. He didn't want people to have to pay for it. He didn't want the gospel to be a thing that you had to have money in order to access. Even though he had every right to ask for payment. Instead, he sneaks in in verse 17... He was motivated by a very different sort of reward that we'll talk about in a few moments' time. But really, uh, the point is this. When Paul preaches the gospel of grace, he does so with grace. The gospel of Jesus promises salvation to everyone who believes free of charge. And so Paul wanted to proclaim the gospel of salvation, free of charge. The gospel is about the generosity of God. So, says Paul, I wanted to offer it to you as generously as I possibly could. And the gospel makes you free. So I preached it to you freely. And so it really is, it's, it's, it's actually very similar to what he said back in chapter 8 about food sacrificed to idols. Paul has a right he has the right to be supported as he preaches the gospel, just as the, the, the Corinthian Christians had a freedom, had a right to eat that, that meat that had been sacrificed to idols. But Paul freely gives it up for the sake of the salvation of other people. So as to not put any stumbling block or any barrier between them and the gospel, especially not something as insignificant as money. And there is a really important principle here, isn't there? Paul looks at the Corinthian Christians and, and he, he thinks to himself, what is more important, my rights or your salvation? And for Paul, that's a really easy question to answer. That's a really important thing to understand about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christian freedom, Christian freedom is unlike any other freedom in the world. Christian freedom is the freedom to serve. The freedom to give up what we are owed for the sake of other people's salvation. It's not a freedom that you fight to keep or, or demand to have. It's a freedom that you receive from Jesus. Jesus. And freely, we give it up in service. And if you don't understand that freedom, actually, there are things about our church that won't make sense. In a few moments' time, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper. And if you're from a a traditional sort of church, then when you have the Lord's Supper, you're used to having wine. Well, we don't have wine when we have the Lord's Supper. Why? Because there are people within the St. Matthew's family who struggle with alcohol. And we do not want to put a stumbling block in their way. We want them to fully participate in sharing together, in remembering Christ's death through sharing in a meal. And so we all just have juice. Now, some churches you might have been to, they pass around a bowl or, or, or a basket and they, they put it in your face and they ask, it, they ask for your money. We don't do that here because we don't want this to be about money. We don't want people to come to our church and imagine that we are after their money because we aren't after their money. In fact, we're after something much more precious than your money. We're after your heart because we want you to love Jesus as much as we love Jesus. But you won't understand Christian freedom until you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because after all, Jesus Christ gave up his freedom and his rights and his pleasures as well, didn't he? Jesus is the one who gave up his right as the one through whom and for whom and by whom the entire universe was created, when he became an ordinary human being like each one of us. And Jesus gave up his freedom, his freedom from death, as he became subject to crucifixion, perhaps one of the most painful and humiliating deaths that the human beings have ever devised. And Jesus even gave up the pleasures of his eternal relationship with the Father as at the cross, he endured all of the Father's righteous anger at our sin. And why did Jesus do all of these things? Because Jesus looked at us and said what is more important my rights or your salvation and for Jesus that was a really easy question to answer just like it was for Paul and just like Paul hopes it will be for us as well but how does he expect us to do this It's one thing to to ask us to give up our rights for the salvation of other people, but how do we actually do it? And this is where Paul says, you do it by keeping your eyes fixed on the prize, fixed on the reward. That's how we will be able to be as disciplined, as self-control, as focused as an elite athlete. There is a reward, he said in verse 17. Have a look there again, verse 17. There is a reward. I preach the gospel and I do it for free because there is a reward. That I'm looking forward to. There is a reward for choosing to give up your rights. And he goes on to use similar language in, in, in verse 24 and onwards as well, there is a prize, I'm running a race, it's like I'm running a race and there is a prize that means I'm in strict training, I'm being disciplined, I'm being self-controlled. And when an athlete does that, well they do it for a prize that is perishing, a prize that does not last. And that was very true back in that day. The prize for the Corinthian games was a hat of wilted celery. That's what they went into strict training for. That's not a very good prize at all, is it? That's a a terrible prize. We do a little bit better now, don't we? We at least kind of hang a gold medal around people's necks. That lasts for a little bit longer, although not always even does it last that long because actually Do you know why we now put the medal around their necks? We didn't used to. We used to just kind of hand it to them. It's because in the 1956 Melbourne Games, a rower was so excited that he won his gold medal that when they handed it to him, he immediately dropped it in the river. And so now we don't trust athletes. We've got to put it on a cord and hang it around their necks. But the prize that Paul is working for is imperishable. It's an eternal crown. That lasts forever. And so what is the price? What is the reward that Paul is working towards? Why is he proclaiming the gospel free of charge? And I think it's there in verses 19 to 23. I think he answers that question and he answers it again and again and again. And he says, what do I gain? I gain people. I gain fellow lovers of Christ Jesus. I give up my rights. I I even make myself a slave. I'm as disciplined as an elite athlete. And in return, I gain people. I gain fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Pick it up at verse 19, would you? Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might not win, but save. Son, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. See, Paul gives up his rights, he gives up his freedom, Paul even makes himself a slave. Paul is willing to endure everything for the sake of other people's salvation. It's people who are his prize, his reward. And as he says in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Or as it's better translated, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. See, Paul wants the blessings of the gospel. Who wouldn't? The blessings of forgiveness and pardon. That's the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How wonderful it is to know that all that we have done, all that we have thought, all that we should have done, all that we have failed to do, all of it is forgiven in Jesus. What a wonderful blessing. What about the blessing of of rebirth and the blessing of eternal life, the, the chance to start anew in the hands of our God? to be spiritually brought to new life, a life that lasts forever. Or what about the blessing of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit within us? These are all wonderful blessings, the blessings of the gospel, but for Paul, it's not enough. It's not enough if he can't share those blessings with others. He wants to enjoy them with as many people as he possibly can. This reminds me of a a moment many many years ago I was in a a group of people listening to uh, a great evangelist called John Chapman who some of you may have heard of and uh, someone asked John what's your goal in life John and quick as a flash because John Chapman was always as quick as a flash he said my goal is to get to heaven and to take as many people with me as I can what a great goal and a life spent pursuing that goal is a life well spent. Now, don't misunderstand me. Paul is not somehow saying here that he is saving himself by his evangelism or saving himself by the sacrifices that he has made, as if somehow Christ's death is of no significance. But he is saying that as one of Christ's saved people, as one who Christ laid down his life for, I now lay down my life for others. See, I think Paul has a very, very clear vision of the future in the end. I think he sees that one day he he will receive from the Lord Jesus Christ the imperishable crown of eternal life that he talks about in verse 25. And he will also see there this whole multitude of other people uh, beyond counting all themselves receiving from the Lord Jesus the imperishable crown of eternal life. And then they'll come to him, some of them, and they'll say, you know, I have this crown because of Jesus, because of what he gave up to save me. But I also have this crown because of you and what you gave up, because you preached the gospel to me free of charge because you became like a Jew or became like one under the law or became weak, you made yourself a slave. You gave up freedoms and rights and pleasures. And that, that really helped me to get here today. And Paul will say, it was worth it. Every moment, every sacrifice, it was worth it. To see you here today, to see you receiving from Jesus... The crown of eternal life, that's why I did it. That's my prize. That's my reward. And what a prize it will be. We need to finish up. Just time for one more question. Why does Paul ask it of us in this way? Why does Paul ask us to give up our our, our freedoms and our rights for the salvation of others? Why does he set us an example? Why does he ask us to do it voluntarily? He wants us to choose to do this, like he chose to give up his right to be paid. But why didn't he make it a command? He could have, he's the apostle. Why didn't he make it a rule? He could have, he has the authority. But instead, he, he just asks us to do it freely. And part of the answer is that's the nature of the gospel, isn't it? That's the nature of Christian freedom. And the Apostle Paul is the last person in the world who will want to take Christian freedom away from us. But mostly I think it's because Paul doesn't want us to lose our reward either. Paul wants to leave to us the same choice that was left to him, the same opportunity to give things up for the sake of of others' salvation. So that we might have opportunity to look forward to the same reward that he looked forward to. See, I think Paul wants us to look forward in the same way he did. To look forward to that great day when those who have put their faith in Christ will receive from Christ the imperishable crown of eternal life. And Paul wants us to imagine the great throng of people, number beyond counting, that we will see around us, all receiving their own crowns of eternal life. And he wants us to have the joy of some of them coming over to us and saying, you know, I have this crown because of Jesus, because of what he gave up to save me, but I also have this crown because of you because of what you gave up for me. Because of the freedoms and the rights and the pleasures that you gave up. That, that really helped me to be here today. You know, that, that time you welcomed me to church, I was really nervous. It really helped me, the way that you looked after me and, and sat with me and talked to me. Or the way that you, you prayed with me when God felt so very far away. Or the way that you sat with me while I grieved and hurt and you didn't judge me. Or the way that you opened the Bible with me and and, and read it because I really needed to hear God's voice. Or the way that you, you shared a meal with me. The way that you shared your life with me. Or the way that you took that week off and you... You went and you, you were my leader at, at Camping ground, and you taught me so much. Or the way that you, you brought me along to, to what's next and then to, to Christianity Explored and, and I got to hear about Jesus. The way that you removed stumbling blocks, the way that you removed barriers, you removed hindrances, even though you didn't have to. The way that you served me. That made a difference. The way that you showed me Jesus by making my salvation more important than your rights or freedoms or pleasures. That really helped me to get here today. And the way that you followed Paul's example, even though he was just following the example of Jesus, that really helped. Do you know what we will say when they come and say those things to us? We'll say it was worth it. Every moment, every sacrifice, big or little, seen or unseen, everything that we did, it was all worth it. To see you here crowned with eternal life by Jesus Christ. To see you with me here now with Jesus for eternity. That's why I did it. That's my prize. That's my reward. And what a reward it will be. And what a joy it is to serve Jesus. Jesus. And to be a slave of each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know our hearts better than even we do. You know how tightly we hold to the things of this world our freedoms, our rights, our pleasures, our time, our money, everything. And Lord, they're they're good things. There are even things that we're entitled to. But Lord, how unimportant they are. We're compared with the joy of sharing with others in the blessings of the gospel. Lord, we pray, help us to understand life from the perspective of eternity. Help us to consider no sacrifice too great, no pain too much, no cost too high compared with the reward of seeing others crowned with eternal life from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For that's the love that Jesus has shown us. And so, Lord, we simply pray this. Help us to be like Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen.